We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. You know, keeping democracy alive, it isn't easy to do. It's so easy to just, uh, you know, click like on Facebook or whatever and uh, sign a petition online. But keeping democracy alive really takes some effort a lot of times. And, of course, we look to leaders to uh, repair everything. Right now, uh, Bernie Sanders is doing exceedingly well in uh, keeping democracy alive. But this is not about any one person. We, the people, as intended by our founders, have to take things into our own hands to keep democracy alive and to uh, breathe more life into democracy, make democracy real. There's something called economic democracy. What is that? Well, we'll be talking about that and how it affects uh, overall economic strength and freedom and uh, really builds up democracy. Uh, Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Jeff Gilbert. Jeff Gilbert is a freelance writer who focuses on social justice activism, alternative economics, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, and of course the militarization of U.S. foreign policy, and parenthetically, we're getting a lot of militarization of U.S. domestic policy lately too. Jeff Gilbert's writing has been published in In These Times, Salon, Truthout, the baffler, and waging nonviolence against other publications. And again, uh, the sentiment for economic populism is as old as America itself, if not really older than that, economic populism. Suddenly, in 2015, it has emerged as a strong, seemingly new idea that through the campaign of Bernie Sanders is getting some serious traction across the country, but not content to wait for national politicians to talk about this and to follow through and to make it happen, at least one municipality is taking the lead on its own. Oddly enough, Cincinnati, Ohio. Who'd have thunk it? Cincinnati, a uh, hotbed for uh, uh, radical uh, experimentation, laboratory. Uh, The United Steelworkers and Mondragon USA has launched a grassroots agenda to move populist discontent beyond protest toward the actual building of new institutions, putting a new agenda into gear, making it reality without waiting. Well, again, Jeff Gilbert, thanks for being with us. In what condition uh, did you find or, or did we find Cincinnati's economy? How did it get that way? What kind of situation is it in and how did it get that way? Um, so Cincinnati is in the deindustrialized Rust Belt, so it's 
not doing very well and hasn't been doing well for a very long time. Uh, it's got very high poverty rates and very high child poverty rates that are absurdly high, over 50%, which is higher than even the, the very high national average of around 33%. Um, so it's, it's not doing well at all. And how how did it get that way? Has it been sort of a long, slow slide? Have there been national policies which have, you know, done that to the city? Or do you think how much of it has to do with Cincinnati itself? Um, I don't think much has to do with Cincinnati itself. It's more um, a lot of manufacturing has, has shifted away from the region as sort of labor... In, in the United States, it's more expensive than in other countries, and right. and sort of the the technology developed both in terms of transportation and communication, where a, a big multinational corporation could easily um, set up its operations across the border in Mexico or sure. in China or in somewhere else in East Asia, and and it wouldn't really cost them much more. So I think that's that's why we've seen a lot of investment and jobs shift away from from Cincinnati and the entire. Uh, what used to be the U.S. sort of industrial zone. Yeah, yeah. It's been an awful lot of people have been really, really hurt. And, you know, they've been trained for this. They've, they've spent their lives in this. And uh, largely because of a lot of uh, tax policy and help from the federal government, which is often seen as a wholly owned subsidiary of the big corporations that ship jobs overseas, Cincinnati uh, gets really hurt. Well, you write... Although protest can bring people together and demonstrate popular support for addressing problems, only new or reformed institutions can deliver lasting solutions. If, if you could, please, Jeff Gilbert, talk about the genesis of the Cincy, Cincinnati experiment, please. Great. So, yeah. Um, so the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative was, was launched by basically four people, three of whom are still key people that are really sort of the, the main people involved in it, and that's Kristen Barker um, and Element Fletcher-Vera and Phil Amidon, um, a retired railroad mechanic, also helped him found the venture, and, and they started it to, to address this very crisis that you just mentioned, um, the fact that there's been an ongoing economic crisis in Cincinnati for, for decades. So they started the organization trying to address that crisis and to create what they call family-sustaining jobs um, and bring them back to the city. Wow, that's quite a task. Now, the CUCI, what is that again? What does that stand for? It stands for the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative. And so who who were these, these four people? Were they all part of the... Uh, United Steel Workers Union. There was a lot of uh, steel-related jobs in Cincinnati. Where did they get the these ideas for that? Was there, and and you write about something called the One Worker One Vote Network, and a union co-op model. Let's talk about uh, that. What what did they have in mind? When did this happen? And let, let's uh, eventually talk about you know its its genesis, how well it has been working, and uh, just where we are today in Cincinnati. Great. So you mentioned Montregon in, in your opening. Um, that is a cooperative corporation that was formed in the Basque region of Spain, I believe, in the 50s. Wow. Um, so that's been going on for a long time, and it's become 
one of the leading companies in Spain. So I think it's it's one of its top five industrial producers. So they've been experimenting with this model, and, and I'll, I'll get back to discussing the model. But So the United Steelworkers partnered in 2009 with Mondragon. Uh, Mondragon faces its own problems. It needs... Um, it needs to increase its own investment, so it's sort of looking to invest in the U.S. as well. So they sort of created this partnership um, in 2009. Now in Cincinnati, uh, the founders heard of this agreement, and Phil Amidon is is the one who really um, this this meant something to him. He had visited uh, the Basque region of Spain back in the 80s, actually, and he was very involved in his railroad union. Um, so this sort of was a light bulb for him. Uh, economic crisis had just sort of begun to unfold, and he had already been thinking about Mondragon a while ago, and he saw this agreement and was really excited. So um, the other three members who I mentioned, Kristen Barker and Ellen and Fletcher Vera, uh, be- before starting this venture, were all activists in the Cincinnati area in some way. Um, Flecker worked for the Amos Project, which is sort of a faith-based group, and Ellen was working for the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union. Um, so they were pretty involved in activism in the area, and Phil sort of brought this idea to them, and they started to study it. And they realized that this was a, a really promising thing that they could undertake. So they studied the model, so I guess uh, it would be good for me to explain that. It's basically a business structure that combines um, a cooperative with unions. So to be a cooperative, you're going to be owned by either the employees and consumers, or you're going to have some sort of ownership for people who participate in the business. And what makes this model unique is that you combine that cooperative structure with a union structure. So everybody who, all of the employees who own these cooperatives. The model calls for them to also join unions and for them to basically elect different structures within the the business so that they can can be represented, be part owners, and then also sort of have a way to, to manage the operations. And it, there's so many questions. What... what Give us a tangible example of something in Cincinnati. Was there like a closed factory and these people got together and and made it happen? And of course, it's the big, big, big question of financing. I mean, it takes a lot of money to do this stuff. And and so far, you know, as you write, we've had a all across the country in general, our economy is corporate managed. You know, it's the people that have access to the big financing and this is so. This is something different. How about the? How did the financing work? G- give us an, a, a tangible example of some place or, or factory or something that uh, and how it worked. Okay, so I say that the economy is corporate managed because investment in new production is mostly going to be made by the large entities, the corporations that account for a huge percentage of of our GDP. Yes, and the federal government could be could also be involved in allocating investment capital, but for ideological reasons, that's not something that our government does. Yeah. So the task, the task here for, um, for these people in Cincinnati is, is to attract capital, which they can then keep there. 
um, rather, and, and they can't do so through the dominant channels, which is um, controlled by the, the companies that are the, the biggest companies in the country. So this group is actually very sophisticated financially. They've been able to attract financing in, from many, many different places, grants and loans from labor unions, grants and loans from foundations. They've gotten some public funding. Um, so to provide one specific example, yes, please. Um, I'd say Sustainergy, which is one of the co-ops that is up and running. The other one is Our Harvest, which is a farming and sort of food wholesale business. Um, so Sustainergy is a clean energy construction company. So what they do is they basically outfit. They used to work on commercial and industrial properties. Now they work primarily in residential properties. And they basically go there and they improve the energy efficiency of um, what exists on the property. So they're going in and they're changing lights so that they're more efficient. They're insulating homes so that they do more with, with more energy. Um, and they're, they're going to be making their way to more capital-intensive kind of upgrades like um, installing more efficient boilers and stuff like that. Um, so... For the example of financing with Sustainergy, um, they basically, through a group called Green Umbrella, which is a mm. sort of local to Cincinnati um, activist outfit, clean energy activist outfit, um, they lobbied the Cincinnati government to create something called a, a PACE financing program. So PACE stands for the Property Assessed Clean Energy. So basically what happened was uh, an agency within the municipal government, I think it was the, the Port of Cincinnati, um, issued bonds. And they used the revenue from these bonds mm -hmm. to make loans to people who qualified for PACE financing. So basically what happened was Sustainergy just needs to identify these clients and then it sort of directs these clients to this financing. So then Sustainergy ends up being paid in part with, with public funds to do this. Um, so there's different financing options like that that are available to sophisticated people who know, know how to get financing. So the, I was going to ask about the, uh, local government. They've obviously seen how hurt the city has been using the traditional, uh, you know, corporate managed model. They have been supportive. Is it accurate that they have, uh, authorized, uh, municipal bonds? The city is backing some of the bonds, which then, you know, people can invest in. So the city has oh, been... yeah. The, Go ahead. The city's very... Yeah, the city has supported that. They were lobbied by Green Umbrella, which uh, the CUCI participated in, in that, that effort, and they're very much being helpful, um, at least for that venture. Now, I wouldn't say... It's not like the city has developed any kind of comprehensive plan to start more networks of cooperatives like this to employ people, but right. they have supported it in this, this limited way. Interesting. And I, I don't know Cincinnati at all. I know approximately where it is, but in terms of Democrat-Republican, is it a generally conservative area, generally liberal area, and the government? Is, are there, is there bipartisan support for uh, you know, supporting these, uh, these bonds? Um, I'm not sure either. I think it is it is a question of bipartisan support. I think that is what's happening. 
Great. I mean, it's not like Cincinnati isn't any kind of fashion of progressivism. I wouldn't think so. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wouldn't think so. And and you're reminding me, actually, uh, when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, uh, the city of Nashua had uh, was buying its water from the Penichuk Water Company, a private company, and they weren't doing a good job. And they this a lot of the citizens of the city, including the government, were not real pleased about it. And they came to the legislature, the city did, and wanted to municipalize take ownership of this private water company. And I just sat back and watched it because this was sponsored by Republicans. And I just thought, oh my goodness, this is such a traditionally left uh, thing to be doing. And here, <laughs> here were Republicans favoring this. And it did work, and it has benefited the city. You know, municipalization of utilities, is, it's, is it somewhat similar? Is it a similar idea? And along uh, you know similar paths. Um, can you can you repeat the question? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think what you're describing, what you've described so far, is that these old factories, these businesses, uh, in the past, the, um, uh, the there wasn't a lot of uh, worker participation in ownership or control. The stakes were held only by the owners, and they weren't taking. Input, really, I know this is a typical case, they don't take input from the workers who could make things a heck of a lot more efficient if they were asked, if they had a stake in how things get produced, if they had a say in how things get produced. And it seems to me, excuse me, municipalization, you know, whereby the local people, the people who are most affected, get to participate in the decision-making process. And it goes from, uh, you know, the profits all being skimmed out to a few people, the profits being shared by the people who are actively participating and managing it. I, I think it's a, you know, along the same lines, it's, it's something that's happening. The municipalization is something that has been talked about for a while as being part of a democratic economy. When you hear the words democratic economy, what does that mean to you? What what do you see as a democratic economy? Paint a picture, if you would. So, yeah, I think you, you sort of hit the nail on its head there. Um, so a democratic economy would just mean that um, people who are part of the economy are impacted in one way or another, have a, have a say in what happens. Um, and in terms of making a democratic economy a reality, I think the key, the key issue is um, democratizing investment capital. So uh-huh. money that's been made from operations, call it profit, call it whatever you want, how does that money get reinvested? Um, if there's democratic say in how that money gets reinvested, now you're in a situation where there's sort of democratic control of, of the shape of the economy. And you, you mentioned... Municipal ownership, Yes, uh, that's a little bit different of a model from this, sure. this network of cooperatives, but same kind of principle. And as you noted, municipalization, um, ownership by municipalities has sort of continued along in America, um, but more on, on a, the kind of project basis that you mentioned rather than as part of any kind of comprehensive plan. Right. 
If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Jeff Gilbert, who has uh, written about the Cincinnati experiment in real economic democracy. Cincinnati, always, of course, known as a hotbed of uh, left-wing radicalism. Not. (laughs) What about the state of Ohio? Are they assisting in any way? And you have a remarkably, I think, very good senator, from what I hear, in Sherrod Brown, is the state being supportive? Is Sherrod Brown being supportive, or are they not participating in this at all? Um, so Sherrod Brown has been sort of a public advocate for something called employee stock um, ownership plans. Uh, ESOPs, yes. Um, so he's he's sort of been involved, and in, and in actually back in in 2012, Bernie Sanders, who you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Senator running for president. Um, he introduced legislation into the Senate, uh, two different bills, one that would have sort of created employee ownership centers, federal mm-hmm. funding for those employee ownership centers in different states, and they would offer sort of training and, and general expertise sort of guidance. Then the second bill would, would have been to create a um, sort of public, uh, publicly funded um, cooperative bank on the national level that would be able to mm-hmm. offer loans and, and sort of address the financing question that we've been discussing. Yeah. Uh, Sherrod Brown was a co-sponsor of these bills. Yeah. So Sherrod Brown has been supporting this, but there hasn't been so much uh, to show in terms of legislation. But, you know, with this stuff growing and, and if the CUCI can become sort of more widely known in the local area, um, you know, they could potentially throw their weight or, or organize some sort of campaign to, to get the legislation that, mm. that I just discussed, something like that. Yeah, it sounds uh, really interesting. And, of course, uh, Ohio is hugely important in the 2016 presidential election. Ohio is always hugely important in every presidential election. And you have uh, Governor Kasich running for president right now. has He's, of course, a conservative Republican. He doesn't strike me as a completely wacky Republican like so many of them are. Has he said anything about uh, what's going on in Cincinnati? No, I don't think he's too focused on um, employee ownership. But um, At least he hasn't gotten in the way? No, see, that's that's the thing. They're not sort of framed as ideological proposals. They're just very practical. And in a lot of ways, it's it's about bringing jobs to either a state or to a city, so that, that makes whatever politician is, is sort of in government look good. So there's been right. support for these kinds of things. And, and actually, in, in Cleveland, there's um, another initiative called the Evergreen Cooperatives, um, which is up and running and probably um, further along in the process than uh, the CUCI, and it's received funding and support from the mayor, who, you know, as you mentioned, is not, definitely not any kind of socialist or someone who advocates for public ownership on some sort of ideological stance, but it's just a practical bringing jobs to a city kind of thing. Interesting. I wonder if there has been opposition. Has there been resistance to it? I can imagine ideologically some you know, traditional conservative corporate Republicans and Democrats who saying, 
but but we need to keep uh, the corporate structure as it is. That this you know the decision making uh, has helped the one percent tremendously, and that that's the way to improve the economy. Not to mess with it. Not to make it more economically democratic, but to leave it in the hands of the corporate uh, managers that have gone on thus far. Has there been any kind of ideological resistance to it, or is it simply working too well for them to uh, call attention to it and to say this is not the way to go? I think there hasn't been so much resistance, mostly because this stuff's flying very far under the radar. <laughs> um, there isn't enough... Um, sort of capital involved in this for it to really register. Um, the the corporate economy doesn't care about this. It's very much on the fringe right now. Maybe if it were to get bigger, then, then yeah, you'd see more ideological pushback. But actually, from what I've gathered, speaking to people who are involved both with what's going on in Cincinnati and in Cleveland, um, the local business community is very supportive of these kinds of things. Sure. Because yeah. what it does is it, it brings investments to the community, and you're creating these employee owners who have good jobs and are then consumers in a way that they weren't before. So it sort of creates more demand for other businesses in the area as well. Um, yeah. It's just, you know, employing more people, having less employment compared to more employment is just, it's good economic policy, really helps everyone. So um, we, we've seen a situation where local business leadership is supporting this kind of stuff. I can imagine. Sure, they like people, working people, able to buy their stuff, come in their retail stores and buy stuff, and, you know, it's just uh, all over good for the economy. And again, you know, the issue of financing, I'm sure, has been interesting and and challenging. I can imagine, you know, the big banks like Bank of America and others – being nervous about it, uh, not particularly likely to uh, risk their money. I mean, the, the, you know, the interest rates are so incredibly low these days anyway, so I think they're very, it, it's not a risk that they want to take. And a while ago, I did a show about publicly owned banks as well. And the reality of publicly owned banks as opposed to privately hold, held banks. Uh, they have had remarkable success in recent years in other such hotbeds of radicalism as North Dakota. Might this be part of uh, family and community sustaining solutions so that uh, mm-hmm. publicly owned banks might you know, have, have more inclination to go with something like this, you know, economic uh, democracy and, and alternatives. Do you know about publicly owned banks? Are there any? I don't know if there are any in Ohio or, or if this is something that might help the process along. Yeah, so there are a couple of sort of state-backed ventures, like you mentioned, that do exist, but they're pretty small in terms of capitalization compared to the mainstream banking system. Um, But when we do talk about economic democracy and um, people together controlling and making decisions about investment capital, banks are a huge part of that picture. Um, But so Mondragon and the one worker, one vote union co-op model, um, actually a huge part of that is cooperative banks, which are sort of a, a, a form of a public bank. Basically, Mondragon, which I mentioned, is yeah. uh, 
the company in Spain. So they, what they do is, is basically, the way this whole thing is structured is that there's a central cooperative, um, which sort of seeds other cooperatives. So that's what Cincinnati is trying to start. And then once the cooperatives get up and running and start to have profitable operations, they then send 10% of their profits back to the central cooperative. And what Mondragon has done with, with that money is, is really impressive. They've created a, a sort of really sophisticated, sprawling economic entity, and they've actually developed a bank from that money. So hmm. they directly loan money to um, new co-ops, to existing co-ops, and they're able to provide credit at below market rates. And, and it really, it's a huge, huge part of the venture. And that's that's where the CUCI is trying to go. Um, it's not quite there yet. And One Worker, One Vote, which is the, the sort of partnership between the United Steelworkers and Mondragon USA, are also working on a venture to sort of um, try to create something like this at the national level. Ah. Um, but, yeah, that would be a huge part of the picture. Interesting. And, and of course, you talk about uh, Mondragon in, in Spain and as probably most, if not all, listeners of this uh, show, Keeping Democracy Alive, are aware, Spain is having a very tough time right now. Massive unemployment. It's it's a huge, huge mess there. I wonder, you may not know, if Mondragon is, is trying to help, if they're, you know, the Basque region where more of these uh, Mondragon uh, enterprises are, if that's doing better than Spain, or if it's expanding in Spain at all. And if not, I wonder why not. Oh, yeah. I mean, as I mentioned, Mondragon's already pretty big in Spain. Uh-huh. Um, and so the Basque region, the reason why they created the cooperatives initially was because it was a really impoverished area, especially hard hit by the Spanish Civil War. Um, and they've sort of rebuilt that whole region. And now, as you mentioned, there there is really high unemployment in Spain. And yeah. in the Basque region, I think, I haven't seen the most recent numbers, but I think uh, unemployment is about half the national average. Yeah. So mm. Mondragon has definitely played a huge role in that. Interesting. So hopefully... And the other thing with Mondragon is that um, if one of its cooperatives does um, go out of business, has to enter into bankruptcy, um, part of the support infrastructure that they've set up through the central co-op, which gets the, the 10% of profits from all the other co-ops, is they've sort of set up an internal insurance agency, which also includes unemployment insurance. Ah. So what we would call welfare here, um, it's it's set up a welfare system within the network of cooperatives. And it also does, um, it also has an office within the, the central co-op that works on relocating workers from sort of closed cooperatives to other ones that are, that are up and running. And its main... It's really institutionalized and imperative to employ people and to employ people with high wages and high benefits, and it, it works to do that. Well, that's good to hear. I'd, I'd like to uh, visit that area, and it's amazing how <laughs> the effects of the Spanish Civil War continue to this day. It's like history really just doesn't end. And worker-owned and community-controlled cooperatives have kind of long been an idealized vision on the left in America, probably at least since the early part of the, the 20th century. 
what about these worker-owned and community-controlled co-ops? They've been tried. Have What have been their difficulties? Because my sense is, and I'm not clear on this <clears throat> at all, is that they have been difficult to sustain. Do you know anything about the history of worker-owned and community-controlled co-ops? Sure, yes. Yeah. So I think an important distinction um, needs to be drawn. This, especially since the 60s, co-ops have been of great interest to activists, primarily on the left in the U.S. Um, but with with that, what we're talking about is more just an individual co-op. With the union co-op model and with One Worker, One Vote and the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative, what we're talking about is a, a network of co-ops. So a co-op of co-ops. So it, it sort of creates this um, support infrastructure that makes it much easier to get financing, to be able to grow, uh, to sort of spread knowledge of expertise both in the, within the community and also to train people who are involved in the co-ops. Um, and it also, scale is really important. So if you have a, a standalone co-op, uh, it becomes very difficult to be a good producer of anything. It, it's really important to get sort of large-scale buyers. And in order to do that, you got to hit really low price points. So you need scale. So I think a huge problem with co-ops in the U.S. has been the inability to achieve scale in this this sort of newer model, which which people in the U.S. are taking from Mondragon, um, makes it much easier to achieve scale. So I, I think that's that's why we're sitting here talking about this right now because it's it's really made an advancement in that in that respect. Interesting. That's that's one uh, advantage that stores like Walmart have over others. Scale. They can buy in huge bulk, thereby reducing the costs and theoretically, anyway, selling for, for uh, uh, less money. Of course, they don't pay their workers particularly well, but that you know that's like a economics one hundred and one. You bu- the more scale you have, the larger bulk you can buy. Then. It, it brings the prices down, so that absolutely applies uh, a, as well. Um, if, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest today is Jeff Gilbert, talking about the Cincinnati experiment, the uh, CUCI uh, worker cooperatives. It seems to me there was something called Republic Windows. Um, you may or may not have heard of that. I don't even, It's somewhere in the Midwest, I think, where they went out of business, they went bankrupt, and the workers bought it. I don't know if it was big enough scale to keep it going, but it sounds like it was a similar experiment. Are you familiar with that at all? I think, is that what something that happened in Chicago? I think it was. Yeah, it was Repu- um, Republic Windows. Anyway, it's... it's yes, yes, yes. I, I, I think I, I remember hearing about that. Um, that, it, that wasn't through One Worker, One Vote. Right. And tell us again about One Worker, One Vote, that network. One Worker, One Vote is a network that's a big part of uh, what we're talking about here. So, yeah, it's, it's the national partnership between United Steelworkers and Mondragon USA. Uh-huh. Um, so the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative is one of the members of that network. And um, basically... The network is, is setting up operations in, right now, 10 U.S. cities. Uh, the most developed examples are in Cincinnati. And then there's also some cooperatives that have been set up in Pittsburgh and in Denver. Um, hmm. 
The initiative was launched in 2009, so it's still really young. Yeah. And something like the CCI, it wasn't really even born even as an idea until late 2011. So we're talking about less than three years of operations. Mm. So when we, if, if we were to be sitting here you know, 10 years from now, five, 10 years from now, we'll most likely be looking at something that's much bigger, mm-hmm. and they'll probably be able to have begun to implement some of the support infrastructure that makes Mondragon so unique, um, which, which really could help with the problems of scale that we just addressed. And certainly, uh, you know, there's all this talk about the 1%. Well, not all people with significant wealth are obsessed with greed. Many are, but not all are. And many of them like to invest in good you know, public citizens, uh, you know, cor- businesses that do serve a community. And oftentimes, I mean, this is frankly where a lot of the money comes from for buying bonds. If people who have uh, resources, shall we say, are interested in, in helping out and perhaps buying some of these bonds, how could they find that kind of stuff? So that's one of the problems at the moment. Um, aside from directly sort of offering loans, um, I'm not sure that there is much in, in the way of, of getting involved. Um, but uh-huh. that's, that's something that could be taken care of through legislation, perhaps. Hmm. But there are uh, bonds that, that the city of Cincinnati has authorized for these projects, correct? Correct, correct. Um, but they're not having trouble selling those bonds. I mean, it, it's a pretty limited. They're just that wouldn't be so much of an opportunity to get money involved. But yeah, mm. there are there are ways to invest in, in these limited ways. So probably through the city of Cincinnati uh, municipality to their municipal bond uh, organization, and. One thing I, I've wondered about, right now, most of us buy our electricity from very profitable corporations. I know here, where we're located in New Hampshire, uh, Public Service of New Hampshire, which of course has sometimes been called Public Nuisance of New Hampshire, they didn't ask the communities if they should build a massive nuclear plant but they did it anyway. They didn't ask the communities. There was a lot of resistance from the communities. Uh, they they plunked it down there anyway. Uh, it has not served public service of New Hampshire well at all. It's been uh, very, very difficult for them financially. But they didn't ask the local communities. We buy, similarly, um, up from electricity, we buy health insurance, also from for-profit companies that don't, particularly ask the people that get served, you know, what they should do. We buy retail from basically one super large, again, very profitable Walmart. I wonder, I I think a fair amount about this concept of public utility, of of more uh, democracy within the economy. What are your thoughts on that? How does the concept of, of, you know, uh, economic democracy factor into this when it comes to Situations like that, which, 
you know, we all depend on electricity. We all need insurance. We need water. I mean, look, a lot of the water and gas lines are owned and controlled by the public. I know this is a little bit outside what we're talking about here, but it, I, I think there's there's some similarities, and you've seen how co-ops can actually work. What are your thoughts along this, Jeff? Yeah, these, these cooperative principles can definitely be extended to utilities. And, I mean, American utilities, a lot of them are owned by municipalities. Um, so this is something throughout our country's history that uh, has definitely been on people's mind and, and implemented in a lot of ways. Um, but there also is a lot of privatization in that, in yeah. that regard. But sort of as we were discussing earlier, um, we, we were talking about sort of bipartisan support for different forms of municipal ownership. These happen a lot of times because, first off, it's it, it could be an efficiency question where a private company is sort of is essentially a state-sanctioned monopoly and could be taking advantage of its its one buyer, the government. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll jump to another subject here. What about the good old American, much-beloved uh, belief in rugged individualism. Doesn't the idea of cooperatives kind of rub up against this treasured tradition of, you know, I can make it on my own, I don't need to work with anybody else? Has, has that come up at all in, in the development of the uh, uh, Cincinnati Union Cooperative uh, Initiative? Um. Yes, I mean, I think that's just a big part of our national ideology. We don't really live in um, an individualist kind of world, at least economically. Um, earlier in our country's history, most people were self-employed. Um, we were a country of self-employed farmers, basically, when, when our country began. But now less than 10% of people are self-employed. So... Hmm. This is, it's very much ideological rather than based on yeah. what happens in the world. Right. So people work for large companies. There's nothing less individualistic hmm. about working for a cooperative than there is for working for a large company. Yeah, it's true, and, and uh, I don't think people like that. They, they don't feel particularly as in control of their lives and their economy as we would like to be, because it's not really up to us. But again, there's this myth, and you know the the right wing likes to uh, you know capitalize on this myth and you know just appeal to this old belief in rugged individualism. It's sort of it, it's one that it's it taking a little while to change. It's a cultural change that is happening. People don't want to let go of old beliefs. You know, it, it's very hard to do that. But so I, I remembered um, the point I wanted to make about municipalities, which sort of relates to this, this okay. idea of ideology and different forms of, of ownership and collectivism. Sure. Um, so I think another reason why you see uh, utilities sort of remaining in some sort of public control is because especially in a time where you have um, sort of de- decreasing public treasuries, whether it's at the federal level or... Yeah. Uh, state or local levels, a great way to raise revenue is through direct ownership of operations. So you could have a situation where if you sort of take public control of a utility, 
um, money can be, the, the profits from that utility can be put back into the, the public treasury. Right. Um, and, and you can keep taxes stable or yes. reduce taxes, which is, you know, very politically popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can sort of have these different different options available for you in terms of public finance. Um, so it's, it's a really practical solution for a lot of, a lot of municipalities. Yeah, and that's one of the things about the uh, cooperatively owned banks and state-owned banks is that it really benefits the taxpayers quite a bit. And that's why it's so popular and so successful in places like North Dakota. And, and as you write, Jeff, a huge percentage of startup businesses fail. You know, I, I, probably the majority of startup businesses do fail. Is You know, traditional traditional lenders treat them with really appropriate risk. You know, they have to be very, very careful because a lot of startups fail. How has the uh, CUCI, the Cincinnati Union Co-op Initiative, overcome this challenge? Or has it overcome this challenge? Um, yes, I mean, if, if they do end up starting a bunch of cooperatives, some of them will fail. Right. Um, as, as any... As, well, that's what happens with startup businesses. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's that's been a bigger obstacle to uh, getting affordable credit than ideological reasons. And especially when you when you think that normal credit providers don't really have much experience with cooperatives. So on top of them seeing this as a startup business that's risky in its mm. own right, they also don't understand the, the management structure and how that's going to affect operations and profitability. So I think they're even more reluctant um, yeah. to finance them. So it's, it's definitely been an issue. Well, there's, I mean, traditionally, there's been the vertical uh, structure of, of businesses, the decision-making, and it sounds like, if I have this right, it's, it's a bit more horizontal in this situation. That's something new for these traditional lenders, and they, they, I imagine they have to see that it's going to work for a while before they put their money out there and, and take that risk of uh, investors in the banks. And, and yeah, definitely. You, you write that, quote, cooperatives helped transform their region from a poverty-stricken area to a thriving community with nearly full employment. That it, it's such, it sounds so good that it, as you say, let me read it again, cooperatives helped transform the region from a poverty-stricken area to a thriving community with nearly full employment. What does it look like around these uh, cooperatives in Cincinnati? What, what do you see, I'll, let me continue that question, what do you see in the near and medium-term future for Cincinnati and other cities which may replicate this experience? In any American city, there's especially in cities, but in the whole country, too, there's high rates of unemployment. Um, so I don't think cooperatives aren't the only way that you could transform cities and regions in this way, but any time that you have um, money being invested with the explicit purpose of employing people rather mm-hmm. than creating um, any kind of economic entity that's focused on earning profits, you're going to have a better chance of employing people. And that has sort of um, economic benefits Mm. that extend far beyond any one entity. It's sort of a a systemic benefit. So if you can sort of have a systemic plan for investment, you can create these benefits and and really transform a region. 
Interesting. So I'm, I'm just uh, uh, sitting with this and thinking about it. So then the necessity of developing big profits for you know the vertical heads of the of the businesses can oftentimes be more challenging than you know if it's a cooperative and it the, the purpose instead of generating big profits is creating jobs that might actually be less risky to invest in that's a very interesting uh, concept which frankly I hadn't thought about before right, maybe well for investors it's sort of different because Profits are what oh, investors are investing for. Sure. Um, so, but yeah, there's there's just completely different concerns. I mean, another huge benefit of cooperatives is that you're not really going to see, basically, a business becomes sort of anchored to a place because the people who own it and who work in this business live there. Um, and with a lot of these structures, um, they're sort of, setting up a system where even if the cooperatives, the owners wanted to sell and move elsewhere, uh, they wouldn't be able to. And, and that's that's where a lot of the, mm. the community ownership and community input comes into play, as opposed to just worker ownership and input. Uh-huh. So it's different from the, the traditional ESOP, the employee stock ownership plan. This is much more you know, real investment, much more tangible investment on this. And again, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today, Jeff Gilbert, freelance writer who uh, focuses on social justice activism. And he's written about Cincinnati, uh, worker-owned businesses uh, using a model from, uh, from the Basque region of Spain. And it seems to be working reasonably well. How replicable is this? Is it a, we talk about scale a fair amount. That, that issue has come up. I'm wondering if this can work in, in smaller towns, or does it really need to be something fairly big with a lot of people in a big city for this kind of project to work? Yeah, theoretically, it could work anywhere. Hmm. Um, the, the two main obstacles that we've discussed are financing and, and sort of cooperative expertise, and those are those are definite obstacles that need to be overcome. But an, an entity like the CBCI is overcoming that, and, and with help of the national network, is, is very capable of overcoming that. Um, but in terms of replica, replicability, yeah. um, I think it's, it's useful to sort of look at how the CCI has done this. So they've focused on three different industries, uh, the food industry, uh, manufacturing, and construction. Um, those are industries that are present everywhere. This can be replicated basically anywhere. It's just a question of getting people together who know how to manage a cooperative, know how to set one up, and, and know how to obtain financing. And I imagine uh, if people contacted, what, the United Steelworkers, or, I mean, where can people look on the web for that kind of information? They can go to the One Worker, One Vote website and definitely get in touch with people. And that's the, the number one One Worker, One Vote network, right? Correct. You write about that a national network of co-ops is developing. Tell us about this, please. The national network is just one worker, one vote. Um, oh, I see. And, and as I as I sort of mentioned, uh, so what's happening in Cincinnati is also happening in nine other cities, um, and, and they're in various stages of development. Um, with Cincinnati being the, the furthest along. Ah. 
and it's only been active for just a relatively short period of time. So it must be uh, an exciting period. What has it done to the to the community? Do you think is there? I mean, oftentimes part of the problem in modern day America, twenty first century America, is people feel isolated. They don't feel connected, and there's this longing for a sense of community. Does this uh, address that? issue at all is it's not a money issue just kind of a psychological cultural issue oh definitely um so with with the cincinnati union cooperative initiative you you definitely see this um i think probably the best example would be uh, the third co-op is about to be launched it's called apple street market and it's a, a grocery store in a food desert in cincinnati and it's owned by community members, so by consumers. And right now, according to uh, Kristen Barker, who's the head of the CUCI, um, they have over 950 community owners. So they're really, they're bringing, getting tons of people involved. Um, and, and management of this, this co-op literally looks like community members coming in to have a sort of a, a general body meeting to discuss these things. So it's really bringing people together. Wow. So bringing people together... And a sustainable economic development sounds awfully good. So if people want to follow up on this on, on the Internet, what websites can you point them to? Um, well, I have a, a lot of good links in my article. So if they went to Waging Nonviolence and checked that out, um, they'd be able to go to a lot of places. Um, the others I would mention are One Worker, One Vote, which we just discussed. Yep. And um, a couple others. One would be the New Economy Coalition. If someone were to just search that, they'd find a lot of information. Um, And then also something like the Next System Project. If they were to search that, I think that would also lead them to to very interesting places. Well, a lot is happening, and it's uh, exciting to see from the ground up, not looking, you know, for any great leader to bring it from the top down, people actually making democracy work themselves. And that's been a great, great tradition in American self-government ever since uh, really the 1770s. Hasn't always been easy. There's oftentimes been uh, a lot of resistance to that. It's happening in Cincinnati and other places, and it's, it's great to hear. Jeff Gilbert, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you. Thank you for having me.